Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 400. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. This week's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I am so happy to be bringing you a very special conversation for episode 400. So I mentioned last week that I wanted this to be a special episode, and it is special, but it's not special in commemorating episode 400 per se. It's special in that we had a really important conversation. And as we learn more about trauma and dissociation, attachment injuries, and how they show up in our lives, I've been wanting to explore more deeply. And my guest today is someone who's working with families whose children have behaviors that cause them problems in school, problems at home, And the people in their lives just don't seem to understand why they are behaving this way or how to help. So this is valuable whether you're a parent, a teacher, a caregiver of some kind, and to understand yourself and the ways that you may have 
behaved when you were younger in relation to your experiences. So my guest today is a former clinical social worker who has placed her license on hold right now to focus on the work she's doing. So my guest today is Robin Goebel. Robin Goebel is a former clinical social worker who is currently focused on teaching, writing, providing education, and creating communities for the kids and families impacted by complex trauma, nervous system vulnerabilities, and what she calls big baffling behaviors. In our conversation, you will hear Robin and I talking about why she started working with this specific population and what she believes is key to helping kids who have complex trauma to be able to have the capacity for co-regulation with their caregivers and the adults in their lives. So I hope you will enjoy listening to my conversation with Robin Goebel. As I release this episode 400 today, I just want to say again how much I appreciate all of you who listen, who share this podcast with other people. I love when you contact me with questions and feedback. I love when you comment on social media, and I'm trying to do as much as I can to help more people find therapy chat. So you will be seeing more videos on YouTube, more TikToks and Reels, probably not a lot of me dancing, but you can be grateful for that. So thank you as always for listening. Thank you for the support that you've given, whether this is your first time listening or if you've been listening for eight years, I appreciate you and I value you. And we're all working together to make a change in this world. And I believe that our efforts matter. I'm going to keep holding on to that. I hope you will too. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. And today I'm so happy and honored to be speaking with Robin Goebel. Robin, thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And I've I've wanted to talk with you for a long time and we sort of had like parallel paths, but never did they meet until today. So I'm very grateful for you sharing your time with us. And I want to talk about your book and all the things you're doing. But before we get into the specifics, will you just tell our audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yes. Thank you. I am a social worker, been a therapist my whole career, and really started, I would say, back in high school, wanting to work with kids who had the kinds of behaviors just nobody knew what to do with. I picked up the memoirs of a woman named Tori Hayden when I was in high school, and she was a special educator who wrote memoirs that really read like fiction. And she had the kids in her class that nobody had, nobody else knew what to do with. They gave them to her. And then she wrote books, memoirs. And she hmm. was like a miracle worker. With that, I mean, my 16 year old brain was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I want to do what this lady does. And so I've mostly stayed on that path. And 
you know, finished my graduate degree and and moved pretty much right into working with kids. At the time, we would have said reactive attachment disorder. And I did most of my graduate studies, like learning about attachment and attachment disorders and reactive attachment disorder and adoption and foster care. And realized immediately, I had no idea what I was doing at all. (laughs) Like, I adored those kids. I wasn't prepared to work with them in any way, shape or form. And there was nobody else to send them to. In fact, people were sending them to me. And I, you know, I have this tenacious side of my personality that I think sort of met that as a little bit of a challenge. Like, well, I'm going to figure this out. (laughs) Tori Hayden could do it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So can I. Exactly. And so... I just went to work trying to figure it out, which then ultimately led me to what, you know, we would now say the fields of interpersonal neurobiology, relational neuroscience. Like I had a very enormous aha moment listening to, it was Dan Siegel's 2009 Emdria Conference plenary address. (laughs) And somebody gave, a colleague gave it to me on a CD and I was listening to it driving down the road. And it was just like, what? Like, I don't even know what this guy is saying, but I think it explains everything. Like every cell of my being says yes, but I don't know what he's talking about. Exactly. Yeah. And so I just kept down essentially that path, right? Like interpersonal neurobiology and Dan Siegel's work. And I've studied very closely with Bonnie Badnock, but then moving further into other like the relational neurosciences and polyvagal theory and memory reconsolidation theory and the neurosequential model of therapeutics. And, but I was working with kids. I was working with out of control kids and was trained as a play therapist, a pretty traditional child-centered play therapist and leaving the office with black eyes, an outpatient mm. office, you know, like mm. the kinds of things that you think might happen in an inpatient or residential setting, but no, I'm just a regular old therapist. Yeah, most therapists in private practice aren't working with, certainly not experiencing black eyes on a more than one time kind of right. level. Right. But at the same time, there was nowhere else to send these kids. Like sending them to residential wasn't appropriate or would be helpful. And and so I, again, I mean, I just kept trying to figure it out and looking at different mentors and really just had to bridge lots of different things together. I didn't at that time Mm -hmm. really feel like there was a great map that I could follow from somebody else. And there might've been, and I just didn't know about it. You know, information was a little harder to access back then. And again, just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper. Dr. Perry's work has been so impactful and his neurosequential model and understanding, you know, lower brain dysregulation and the kinds of interventions that support organization of the lower brain are not the kinds of things play therapists, mental health therapists are typically trained in. So I had to kind of go down those paths and ultimately that, you know, I had a practice in Austin, Texas for 15 years where I saw these kids and their parents and really kind of became the place. And I had some colleagues that we, we worked together in the little blue house that we were kind of the place where people brought 
they're really out of control kids, which was kind of fun in a way. And also really supportive to their parents who, you know, we, we would be in session and something outrageous was happening in, in the next one. You know, we'd hear kids screaming and yelling and hollering and they're trashing the waiting room and, you know, or maybe I was running over in a session because I couldn't get a kid to leave. Never had to worry about like, what does my next client think? Because there is a sense of like, oh, we're all in this together. Like we get oh, you too. Mm-hmm. That's my life too. That's so like everything you're talking about. I can almost picture that, you know, because when you are a therapist, especially a play therapist or a child therapist working with a child who's screaming or throwing things, banging stuff against the wall in the next room, you know, the kid in the next room or the family adult in the next room is like, oh my gosh, what's going on mm-hmm. in there? You know, and it's like this fearful mm-hmm. situation and I can just see mm-hmm. how freeing it could be yes. if everybody knew that that's, that's what happens that's here. What it's happens okay. here. It's like kind of containing. It's okay. It's, it sounds out of control, but it's, it's not. Right. Right. And we want our client, I I at least want my clients to bring me those parts of them. That's the whole, that's what I'm wanting to offer them as a place, you know, really safe place to bring those parts of them. So I did that for 15 years and along the way started teaching and training. Like it became very obvious very quickly that I had a lot of privileges and being able to train and access information. And, you know, I had lots of a lot of privilege. And so I tried to offer that then up to like my community and my colleagues who maybe couldn't travel or, you know, take these trainings or whatever. So I've, and I've always just enjoyed teaching and training anyway. So I kind of had that side of my practice as well, both parents directly with parents and and also professionals. And in 2019, we moved from Austin. I closed my practice. We moved across the country I'm the only income earner in our family. So I had to somehow find a way to, you know, move to a place where I didn't have a practice and still support my family. So at that time, I was really leaning into teaching and traveling and training. And then the pandemic happened. So in some ways, that was very hard because I had, I was traveling. I had 18 trips that I canceled when the pandemic happened. And then I was able to, especially in in hindsight, when I look back on it, really fortunately and really creatively figure out like, how how do I just shift to working online then? Which has then allowed me to connect with and reach so many more people. And since I wasn't doing therapy at the time, I didn't, because I had just moved and hadn't started a practice yet, I didn't have to figure out how to see kids online like all my colleagues were doing. Yeah. So I sort of stayed in this role of I was supporting them as they were on the front lines trying to support, you know, their families. And then I've just kind of stayed in that role. I love it. I love what I do. I have a community, an online community for parents of what we say, vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. And most of them have kids with histories of complex trauma, but more and more families of kids with like neuroimmune disorders. I have some personal knowledge of neuroimmune disorders and how that impacts the nervous system. And, you know, can't, families with kids, with, it's just they don't get it. They don't understand why their kids are doing this. And their kids' behaviors are just not quite like their friends' kids' behaviors. 
So more and more of those parents are coming in. And then I also hear from those parents every single day that they don't have anybody to help them. There's no, no professionals. They feel like get it can help them. You know, there's, they feel very alone. So I, I, I guess as I'm telling you all this, I'm like, oh, I have a pattern of this. I saw a problem. I was like, how can I solve this problem? So I was like, I know who can fix this. <laughs> me. It's me. <laughs> oh, like, we need more professionals. Yeah. There have to be more professionals. And also I am a really big believer. I actually feel super strongly that the mental health field clutches too tightly to what we know and do. And there's not enough of us. And the families that I know are drowning. Their lives are in absolute shambles. And so I train mental health therapists, but I also train parent coaches, occupational therapists, educators. I will train anybody who wants to work with parents of out of control kids, because I don't think it's just something mental health professionals can do. And even if I did think that, that would be ridiculous because there's not enough of us. Yeah. And I'll agree. It's not only something mental health professionals can do, but it's also something that a lot of mental health professionals don't do and don't know how to do. Yep. So it's like, where do they, where do they go? It's like, if you have maybe certain behaviors and certain parents, the, the therapist can work with their family to address the situation. But when it's these out of using the words out of control behaviors and everybody's so dysregulated. Yeah. Where do you go? Like, you know, the average family, I know where their child has what I would think of as baffling behaviors Mm -hmm. is probably seeing the child's probably seeing a therapist. The parent might be seeing a therapist and they're probably going to OTs and, you know, maybe doctors to help with, I mean, there may be psychiatry involved. So it's kind of like, it's, you can kind of cobble together a team, but even then you have to, especially like where I live, I don't know how it is everywhere, but here in the DC area, you know, there's like some specialists who people know work with the types of behaviors and symptoms that you're talking about. And you have to, can you get in with that one? This one's got a long waiting list, you know, so it's not, it's not very accessible and people are really in need of help and support. The families are really needing the support. And if you want to help the kids, you can't leave the parents out there. No. And you don't have to go that far from a major metropolitan area to have nobody who knows how to help these kids. And in some even major cities, there's like those, these, these resources and many, for many families really truly don't exist in a way that they could access. And even if they do exist, they still can't access them. They can't, afford them. They can't, they don't have the, they can't take off of work. Right. Like, and I think about, you know, a single mom who has an inflexible job, how is she supposed to go to all these providers? Like that's impossible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I do see where it can be. And this is common too, with like children who are in the foster care system or I'll say specifically for children who are in the foster care system, you often see that that it's almost like a full-time job just to take them around to all the appointments. How could you have another job while trying to do that? So, but let, let me back up for a second. I want to ask you, 
You mentioned what we would call reactive attachment disorder Mm -hmm. in the past. So Mm -hmm. I have two questions that probably go together. One is what kind of out of control behaviors are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And then with that, like, why did you say what we would have called reactive attachment disorder? Because I know a lot of people are like, what do you mean? Would have called. That Mm -hmm. is what we call it. Mm -hmm. So behaviors that I would associate with, with kids diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder are, these are the things parents say, extremely controlling, extremely manipulative, lying, you know, conduct disorder type behaviors, hurting animals, destroying property, fire setting, relate, so severely impaired relational skills, the way they do relationships. And again, most of these families would, would use the word very manipulative very triangulating, always feeling like I don't even know my kid. I don't know what they're going to do. Being, you know, afraid of them. That's what I was thinking. Like I get that sense of like, these behaviors scare me and I don't feel like I can trust my kid in a way. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Which is actually the, the, the setup of the disorganization that's underneath what's causing those behaviors is expecting a caregiver who's terrified or terrifying. Yes. Yeah. So it's a big setup and really hard for an adult to shift out of that, stay regulated and relational to offer these kids the, the, the new experience that they need in relationship. Yeah. So it's almost like the child, I can think of it just through the terms of what I understand. It's almost like the child, this doesn't seem, and what I'm about to say doesn't seem like earth shattering as I'm thinking about it, but to me, but I still think that oftentimes we don't think about this. Like the child is reenacting, you know, Mm -hmm. the experience of being unlovable to find that moment where the parent will show you're right. I don't want you, you know, and then that reinforces the idea for the child that they were unlovable, although it's not true, but that's been their experience of life. And so that's right. Yeah. Well, we all do that. We parents, we all behave in ways that elicit the response from others that we're unconsciously expecting. Yes. And then it just, perpetuates and so 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 when I think about behaviors associated with reactive attachment disorder there it does tend to have this kind of just icky relational feeling underneath them as well and then some of the families I work with wouldn't describe their their family or their child that way they're just very baffled by their kids' behaviors. It's like huge reactions to teeny tiny little problems or, you know, like my kid, like everybody else's kid goes to school, but mine is, you know, covering their ears and, you know, refusing, refusing to go and I don't get it. So I have families who I would kind of put in both categories of just like big, like just unexpected responses to what seem like, like, it just doesn't seem like it matches the problem. Yeah, yeah. And then this other kind of group of families that I work with has that relational piece that's in it too that, you know, emerges from kids who have had serious attachment trauma. 
Yeah. So this may be like the parent who feels like their child is abusing them. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And then reactive attachment disorder is kind of older idea too. Is that? So, I mean, reactive attachment disorder is absolutely still in the DSM and is a diagnosis that kids get, which gets their services paid for. As somebody like in the trenches with these parents, I've really shifted away from even using that language because if you go to Google and put in reactive attachment disorder, one, it's terrifying, like what you read other people saying. And two, the predominant approaches that people are using to parent or even therapeutic approaches, kids labeled reactive attachment disorder are essentially the exact opposite of what relational neuroscience now, 20 years later, is letting us know. Like, hey, those ideas were things that desperate people who had no idea how to help those kids came up with, you know, 20 plus years ago. Bravo for those professionals for trying to do something instead of saying, I don't know what to do, go find someone else. And we now know that a lot of the interventions that get associated with the label reactive attachment disorder are the exact opposite of what kids with attachment trauma, they're exact opposite of what any human needs. And certainly if we're trying to heal attachment trauma. So I typically don't use the language reactive attachment disorder anymore because it's just associated with, you know, colloquially, it's just become associated with what is really, truly the exact opposite of how we want to look at those kids. And it's really hard, you know, if we give that label to parents and then parents start Googling it, they start looking for support groups, they start looking for groups on Facebook with those language and they end up in, in really a, a, oftentimes a more terrifying place. Mm-hmm. And so I will acknowledge with 100% acknowledge to parents these behaviors. Like these, this experience you're having with your kid is totally real. Like this feeling you're having of that you're labeling manipulative and feeling afraid of them. And like, you don't even know who this child is. You're not making that up. Like that's a real experience you're having. Yeah. And we're also going to go a little bit further and look at why. And let's talk about the complex trauma that the attachment piece is just kind of one component of the broader picture of complex trauma. It's an important piece. But if we get too narrowly focused on the attachment piece, we really miss out on a lot of other aspects of these kids' neurobiology that's been impacted and needs to be tended to, or at least seen their behavior through a bigger lens. If we just look at it through the lens of attachment trauma, it's really hard to stay. It's really hard to like that child. And when we just end up in these kind of spiteful place in our own nervous system, which isn't, it's nobody's fault. It's just a path I end up kind of seeing happen. So I just Mm -hmm. think it's been so much more helpful for the parents that I work with to really acknowledge like, yeah, your kid has behaviors that we would label reactive attachment. I'm not not going to gaslight you into saying that that's not true. And I actually think it's more helpful if we look at that as like one facet of them in the bigger context of this complex trauma piece. Well, I'm glad that these, I'm glad that you are doing what you're doing and that, that the families you're working with get to 
have that perspective from you because I, I agree that the reactive attachment disorder idea concept is like it's pathologizing. I mean, I think, you know, anything that sort of makes it seem as if someone can't change. Right. That doesn't inspire any hope. And why in the world would you try to help your child if you don't believe that they can change? And if you're sort of seeing, I think another aspect of it is that it seems, it almost seems when you read like the pop culture description of, of reactive attachment disorders, like that it's a willful on purpose type of thing. Like it's a behavior that's being done by the child on purpose rather than a reaction. Yes, yes. There's that piece. And then there's the piece for sure. And then there's the piece. Yeah, it becomes very personal. And when I work, when I, you know, connected those families, there is a sense of an us against them mentality that is, of course, not conducive to attachment healing. (laughs) And so if I can help the families, again, I don't want to, I'm not negating their experience. It's very real. And I just want to hold it in a bigger bigger context. The other piece of reactive attachment disorder is it, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that this was the intentions of it, but it tends to place the blame like squarely on the child. And then it's this, the child needs treatment. And that's well, I actually think that's never true in kids in general, but it's definitely not true in kids who have attachment trauma that it takes two to tango there. And it's not all about what's happening for the kid. So I I have just found it to be really useful to kind of shift away from that language. Yeah, I agree. And like when you said it takes two to tango, one of them has an immature nervous system. And the other one has at least a fully developed brain. (laughs) You know, I mean, they may have their own, you know, places where their nervous system is like back younger, but they're working with a more complete system, a more developed process than, than the kid and the kids relying on you. Yeah. And it's really hard to keep sight of that when you're working with, when you're parenting these specific kids, they, they can feel very savvy, very intentional, very deliberate. And it, it, it is the way that this, their, their past trauma sets up this enactment where then the parent ends up feeling traumatized by the kid. Yeah. And if we can, again, very much validate that experience, then I try to try to take a little bit of a lighthearted approach. And because parents will be like, why do I have to be the one who has to change? Like, why do I, this is hard. Like I want them to change in in so many words. That's what they're saying. It's good if they could say that so directly. Right. In so many words, that's what they're saying. Like when they change, I'll change. And I can get that because it does feel like I'm only acting like this because they're acting like this. And I don't want to reward their bad, quote, bad behavior. Yeah. And I will just, yeah, kind of jokingly say like, well, theoretically, like we're the more regulated ones in the relationship. (laughs) It's a big bummer. But (laughs) the onus does kind of fall on us to try to figure to try to figure this out. And it's in the, and I say that with a lot of laughter and it is a very important thing for parents to grieve, right? That this is what parenting looks like for them, that they have to do all this work 
to parent this child that nobody prepared them for. And it is hard if, you know, feeling impossible to parent this child. And so, you know, we can laugh and ha ha, like, well, you know, theoretically you're well regulated. We're going to have to be the one who figures it out. But, but man, those young parts of us get to grieve that you're the one who has to do the work for another, for someone else. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for naming that grief because that feels very resonant too. And I've, I've worked with families in this situation where they just want to be a good parent. Yes. They're trying to just be a good yeah. parent and they didn't know that. Yeah. And oftentimes, especially kind of like, I think, I think this can be true for all parents, but with adoption, it comes up often that like the, I didn't, this isn't what I was expecting, you know, oh, yeah. this wasn't. And then because maybe the, you know, that they, they chose this in a way that they, that they're like, yep. maybe I made a mistake or this was, you know, I shouldn't have become a parent. And of course, what is, I mean, that's a devastating thought too. I mean, I could just imagine how painful it would be to even have a, that feeling just like float through your mind. Absolutely. And all of that's very true. And these parents are all grappling with all of this, like maybe I made a big mistake and now I have to deal with the guilt that that thought actually crossed my mind. Maybe this is, you know, all of my faults. Then there's how do I manage the cultural expectations of kind of like the saint adoptive parent. That is a big thing. Yep. And then they, we do, I think, hold adoptive parents to a slightly higher standard of what their parenting should look like. And, you know, and then for some reason, we think that good parents have quote unquote, well-behaved kids. It's not how it works at all. But so there's this extra like expectation that, actually, I'm supposed to be an extra good parent. And then there's a lot of shame in having to reach out for help mm. or acknowledging what's going on. And and also, of course, adoptive parents go through significant amounts of like assessment to determine if they're worthy enough to become parents. So then how do I go to those same people and say, actually, my child is hurting the cat, Mm-hmm. Are they going to take my child away? What are they going to think oh, about me? I mean, yeah. it's just so, yeah. so complex. The feeling of like needing to cover up that things don't feel yeah. easy and breezy like you thought it was going to, or yeah. or even just whatever your expectation was. Maybe it wasn't easy and breezy, Yeah, but definitely not what ended up happening or these types of behaviors that right. that they're seeing that they don't understand. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah, it is. And and I love that you are helping on multiple levels because you're working with parents and with people who work with parents mm-hmm. and, and people who work with kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I find that actually should be the most fun part of the work that I do is seeing the kind of never ending parallel process that's always happening that we absolutely need professionals who can, you know, be equipped to help these kids 
starting with seeing their behavior for what their what their behavior really is getting really curious about like what is the what what's so my theory of interpersonal neurobiology says all you know we're all always moving towards coherence we're we're trying to move towards the most coherent way of being that we know and the nervous system's always looking for safety and connection that you know, connections are baseline where we expect it from social baseline theory. And so like I was learning all these things about interpersonal neurobiology, all behavior makes sense. We're all always moving towards coherence. We're all moving towards connection. Connection is regulating. And I'm like, okay, that's not happening with these children. Something, right? Something's missing in this. Their parents would tell me this child doesn't want connection at all. Connection actually makes my kid more dysregulated. Mm-hmm. Right. But I really trusted Dr. Dan Siegel. I really trusted Bonnie Badnock, who's just been you know, my super close mentor for a long, long time, that all their behavior makes sense and that even those kids have a part of them that is longing for connection. They just also have much bigger, louder, more present parts of them that have learned how to protect themselves in, you know, intimate relationships, like being a family. And so they have these very sophisticated behaviors that perpetuate the attachment disorganization. And that actually makes sense, right? When Mm -hmm. we start to understand memory processing theory and how the brain is, you know, our reality is made up of 80% of the past that very little, 20% of how we're interpreting reality is based on what's actually happening in the here and now. That so much is based on what's happening. You know, so we start to really layer in all of these pieces that ultimately then a behavior happens. The behavior is the only thing we can actually see. Everything else happens internally. And so I just keep holding on to this kind of crux of interpersonal neurobiology and, and some polyvagal theory too. Of, and, you know, we're all searching for connection. Connection is a biological imperative. And I hold that next to, and also uh, your kid is obviously acting in a way that's telling us they don't want connection with you at all. So both of these things are true in this moment Let's look at why. Like if we know connection and resting into connection, our brain needs to develop, our brain needs to survive, like our physical body, right? Like we know now the devastating impact of spending way too much time, right? And not feeling safe mm-hmm. and how that impacts you know, like the the increased rates of autoimmune disorder and substance abuse, and, right? Like we know all these things. So we know if those things are true, then therefore, for me, it really only makes sense that as humans, we really are supposed to not spend all that time in that place. So why are they? And that is the question for me that just keeps me going. Why? Why? What is more important in this moment than feeling safe and connected and at rest. And why is it feeling more important? And if we can really go down that place, we start to get some answers, or at least we can start to get some better ideas about what 
could I do that could be helpful to this child? And we start to learn, you know, look at so much more things about body, not not just affect regulation, but body regulation. That brings me to like what OTs do for work and our sensory systems and regulating our bodies. And then Dr. Perry's work, who's really focused on considering the impact on lower brain development and how we invite the brain into organization. Again, trusting that the brain wants to go. That's a real big crucial piece is that we stay really anchored to the truth that the brain does want to go there. Otherwise, it's so easy to give up and be like, this kid just doesn't, this kid just, this kid just, this kid's just a sociopath. This just kid, you know, anytime I'm tempted to do that, I just go back to you like, but that's not true. Like, that's not how humans work. We, we're a social species. Like our, our species would become extinct. So what is the real problem here? And how do we address that? So I'm always looking at felt safety. I'm always looking at regulation, regulatory circuits, and then the child's experience and connection with their caregivers or the adults, as well as themselves. And then I start to get some good ideas about what might be really causing this behavior and how could I actually help it? Therapists, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend therapy notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. Running a group private practice has been a challenging and rewarding experience. And one thing that has made it so much easier is Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. If you're coming from another EHR, like I did, Therapy Notes makes the transition incredibly easy, importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. My team has found Therapy Notes very easy to learn. It's intuitive. The customer support is second to none. And that's one of the things that has kept me a Therapy Notes customer for several years now. Anytime I've needed to contact Therapy Notes for help with an issue I couldn't figure out on my own, I've been able to get through to someone and resolve the issue within 15 minutes, 99% of the time. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know. Try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just click on the link in the show notes or enter the promo code chat at therapynotes.com. That's fascinating. And I I started in this field in 2002 before grad school, before I was even finished with my bachelor's degree. And it was Bruce Perry's work mm-hmm. that I learned mm-hmm. he had at the time the child 
Child Trauma Academy. Yes. Yeah. And it was like the internet was kind of new at the time, mm-hmm. but he had these yes. free videos you could watch yep. that taught so much about child brain development, and the impact of trauma on child brain development. And I didn't hear him talking about attachment then. He was talking about child trauma and brain development. But I mean, you know, it's related. Just wasn't using that word, at least in what I was hearing. And I haven't followed as much of the neurosequential model. So so how how does the neurosequential model, because when I hear that, I hear like the way that the brain develops mm-hmm. sequentially as yes. being significant. And it's yes. I know it comes from the lower brain up. So well, yes. can you tell us a little bit about that? And then maybe people will want to go to your trainings to learn more. Or <laughs> Dr. Perry's trainings, which are phenomenal. So you know, the, the premise of the neurosequential models of brain develops from the bottom up and the inside out. And what that means in Dr. Perry's work is that we are very usually overlooking the impact on early brain development, because we do, I don't know that Dr. Perry would say what I'm about to say. So I don't mean to imply that. But we do tend to look at these kids and stay real focused on their relational symptoms. And so we're taking a real relational approach to treating them, which looks like standard psychotherapy or, you know, things like that. Whereas like the neurosequential model reminds us that we've got to pay attention to the lowest basement part of the brain because we can't build a stable house on top of a a foundation that's got a lot of holes in it, essentially. And so, you know, in the brainstem and the diencephalon, we're looking at those lowest, most inside parts of the brain. And I'm going to be very oversimplified here. But we're looking at, you know, the autonomic nervous system, regulation of energy and arousal, our, you know, sensory experience in the world and how our sensory experience helps us develop our sense of who we are and how the brainstem and the autonomic nervous system begin to be, you know, patterned in and developed in utero based on the rhythms of the pregnant person. So the autonomic nervous system is Mm. our, you know, all of our automatic stuff, heart rate, respiration, temperature modulation, you know, all, all of this stuff that has a pattern to it, has a balance to it, right? And that's kind of the foundation of it begins with the development of that part of the brain, the brainstem and the autonomic nervous system, which isn't only brainstem, but the brainstem is, you know, what's developing first from the neurosequential model standpoint. That's what's most, that's where the neurons are most connecting fastest, right? Okay. Those connections are really happening at a super fast rate in utero and, and, you know, shortly after birth. And what Dr. Perry's research tells us is that is setting the rhythms of our autonomic nervous system, our ups and our downs, our ebbs and our flows. Sure, for heart rate, sure, you know, for those kinds of things too, but dysregulated out of control behaviors are driven by energy. And if we paused, we would see how a very common factor in these baffling behaviors is that there's, there's no rhythm 
to them. There's no balance, right? There's no up and flow, up and down, ebb and flow. And also they don't match the stressor. Mm -hmm. And so Dr. Perry's work reminds us to pay attention to these lowest parts of the brain. Dr. Perry's work isn't focused on the brainstem. His neurosequential models on the whole thing. But so often, especially folks trained like us, we are overlooking the brainstem and the autonomic nervous system. And also what kids need then, which Dr. Perry would say, are experiences that are rhythmic, repetitive, relational. He has a couple other R words, but when I'm teaching parents, I focus on those. Rhythmic, repetitive, relational, and somatosensory involving the body. And they're here and now. We're not doing metaphor-based processing. I'm not creating a world in the sand tray. I'm not, you know, acting out my trauma with the dolls. I mean, that might be happening, but that's not what is what we're focusing on when we're thinking about brainstem healing. When we're thinking Mm -hmm. about brainstem healing, we're thinking about rhythmic, repetitive, relational, somatosensory experiences and also experiences that happen in moments. Dr. Perry talks about moments of healing a lot. That, and I used to always think, I actually remember feeling so confused. Like, I've got this kid on my calendar Thursdays at 1 p.m. Like, what magical thing happens Thursday at 1 p.m. that makes their nervous system ready to, like, heal in that hour, you know? <laughs> and and I remember really seriously wondering that. And the reason I wondered is because it's not, it doesn't happen. <laughs> like, these kids need, and all humans need, moments of connection, moments of safety, moments of regulation in a titrated way. They're happening, infused, ideally infused in their whole life. And so when I'm looking at these really dysregulated, out-of-control behaviors, part yeah, there's a relational component, but part of what I'm also looking at is like, what's the, I mean, there's a rhythm underneath all human interactions. You know, there's a serve and return that's happening, ideally. You know, I, I gently toss something to you in an interaction and you catch it, you gently toss it back to me. But these kids don't serve and return like that. They like chuck something at your face, Sometimes literally, but sometimes it's the relational chucking or they chuck it past you as far as possible. Ha ha ha. I can't get it. Or you toss them something and they just stand there blankly and look at you. Like there's the, the serve and return is wildly disrupted. Mm -hmm. That really brings us back to Dr. Perry's work, like the rhythmic relational part. And so then my very long winded thing here is it's perfect i'm I'm so grateful that you're explaining this and so clearly and in depth so dr perry's work helps us see that like if we want kids to feel safe relationally they have to feel safe in their bodies and when kids are developing those two things happen together when kids are developing optimally and secure attachment those two things are happening together that they're learning to feel safe in their bodies and relationally. And they're learning this big person, when I'm with them, I feel better. So as as I'm learning how to be regulated in my body, I'm also learning how to be regulated in relationship. But if kids have had, you know, a serious attachment trauma, they aren't learning those things. So we can't rely on the relational pathway at first to be helpful 
because the relational pathway actually triggers more feelings of danger. Mm-hmm. So we really have to think about how do we bring still relational presence. Like I'm still showing up for this child in a relational way as far as what my nervous system is like, but I'm not showing up expecting a relational dyadic serve and return experience, right? I'm showing up wanting to offer opportunities to bring rhythmic, repetitive, relational somatosensory experiences to them. So as an example, if I have a super dysregulated kid, one of the things I will pull out of my back pocket, and when I, and I'm just going to say dysregulated, like actively dysregulated, not shut down, dysregulated. One of the things I often try to keep on hand are things that if the child uses themselves could be rhythmic and then could turn into a rhythmic game between us. So balls, balloons, bubbles, can, you know, like I can toss a balloon to a child and a, they almost always, if you toss something to someone, they'll engage with it because the way our visual processing works. And so I might toss a balloon to a kid and they don't toss it back to me. Maybe they start just tossing it to themselves. Okay, rhythm. Mm -hmm. Now that starts to bring some regulation maybe into their bodies. That widens their window of tolerance for relationship because they feel a little safer in general. Now maybe that balloon kind of gets away from them and comes to me accidentally or maybe intentionally, I don't know. And then I can toss it back to them. And then slowly, gradually, and this could look like over the course of one minute or the course of like one year. Yeah. Right. It shifts, you know, as the rhythm, rhythmic, repetitive, relational somatosensory experience starts to regulate this lowest part of the brain, it can open up some additional relational safety. Mm. Thank you. That's that was a beautiful explanation. And, you know, obviously I don't know this stuff that you just were teaching, obviously, <laughs> as my, you know, Bonnie mix-ups show. But that's okay because I don't try to pretend I know everything. Of course not. But <laughs> we all, I know the things I know. We don't need to know everything. Right, right. But yeah. I do know... You know, I do use sensory and I do use rhythm and attachment and somatic work in my work. And yeah. and so some of the things you're saying, I understand without the why. Of course. Because, yeah. because I've learned those, those, sorry, those techniques or, stra- or tactics, strategies, yeah. not tactics, but you know, rolling a ball back and forth, tossing a ball back and forth is one of the most common interventions I do with adults. Exactly. And, you know, because that nervous system that the child's body had is in the adult's body if they haven't, you know, maybe they found some ways to squash those undesired Mm -hmm. behaviors and fit into a more, you know, socially acceptable adult life Yes. Most of the time, probably finding other ways to exactly. soothe. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it is just so easy. And I still do it. It is still so easy to look at a negative behavior and think it's something that is somehow based in relationship or this child just needs to learn better. I mean, I'm thinking of a kid who I was recently hearing about that was struggling at like day camp at summer camp 
you know, and we are seeing dysregulated behaviors of like opposition, defiance. No, I'm not going to do that. You're not the boss of me. You know, just dysregulated behaviors. And our initial thought is that we're going to address that relationally. And sometimes some people want to address that with like consequences. But even folks who work from my lens and want to address it from like a relational standpoint, they're thinking about like, well, how do we offer more safety relationally? Right. And so they're maybe going to talk to the camp counselor about how they could get down on that child's level or, you know, talk with more curiosity or, you know, all of those things are wonderful, except this particular child, just body was super dysregulated on the inside, which then leaves the body feeling unsafe. Unsafe behaviors look like opposition and defiance. And so this particular family's had noticed that one morning, before going to camp, they were at OT and they stood on a vibrating platform. And this child went to camp, had a great day at camp. And ultimately, the end result of the story is that they bought a vibrating platform for home. So the child was really off from a body standpoint. Yeah. It got addressed, which brought his nervous system into a regulated, safe place. And when we're regulated and safe and connected, pro-social behaviors just emerge. Like we're more cooperative. We're not oppositional and defiant. And so, you know, nothing about this child's behavior necessarily screamed like his body's dysregulated, right? Like he was just sort of being a jerk. (laughs) But if we remember that it doesn't make any sense for kids to just show up new places and be jerks. Like kids need grownups to keep them safe and give them lunch. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like it makes no relational sense. And so if we can just pause and be like, okay, yeah, this kid's being a jerk. What else might be going on? <laughs> what could be happening from a body perspective that he can't tell us about because he's six? And so I think, I mean, really for me, that is the biggest, most important piece of this is can we stay open to those truths that this kid's not just a jerk. (laughs) And I want to be clear, I fall down that pathway as often as anyone else. So I don't say this with any sort of shame to people who fall down that that kid's just a jerk pathway. I mean, I get dysregulated too. We get dysregulated when we're with people who are out of control and we don't know how to help them. So we get dysregulated and then we go punitive and controlling too. Mm-hmm. And I'm just as susceptible to that to, as anyone else. So I'm not criticizing that. And I have worked really hard to notice my own body cues of dysregulation, to notice what kinds of kids really trigger me, what kinds of parents really trigger me. So I can stay as curious as possible and not just go to that parent's just a jerk or that kid's just a jerk, which is really easy. And I, I still do it but I work really hard to stay in a more curious place. Yeah. I mean, it, well, thank you for naming that. It still can come up for you as, as much as your experience with this, because you know, when I think about like just the story you just shared, I think about uh, that kid, let's say this kid six being at camp behaving in this way, how would the camp workers know why exactly, or even be able to, figure that out during the time that the kids at camp. But one thing is like, if we can have an assumption that the 
I don't know. For me, I think what I've always had and held on to is like, no one wants to be the bad person. No, <laughs> no one wants to be like, it feels bad. Mean. <laughs> no. Yeah. People do it out of a defense. And as a, res- some, some as way a, to protect. yeah, as a way that they're showing us what's happening inside their body, that something's happening in their body's not feeling safe or they're feeling dysregulated. But what you said just now is so key that like, we don't expect summer camp workers to show up and be like, oh, I know what's going on with this kid. And I'm not in no way, shape or form do I expect. I mean, that would be wonderful <laughs> if one day. It's probably something about their brainstem is what I'm thinking. Exactly. You're thinking to say, oh, yeah, definitely. And so what are we going to do? Oh, yeah, we know just exactly what to do. I mean, not to be too Pollyanna here, but like, that's my hope that one day more adults than not. Yeah. Not mental health professionals, just all grown ups. Yes. Just know that bad behavior means, huh, something's going on. Let's yeah. be curious about that. So I do hold out that hope for the future, but I don't expect, you know, the YMCA summer camp 20 year old to be yeah. like, oh, or I know. 16 year old. Yeah, exactly. However, even if they don't have any idea what to do, it is true. If we look at interpersonal neurobiology and what we understand through that theory about how the brain changes, that changing how we see people changes people. Mm -hmm. It is an intervention. Yes. So if I can hold on to the truth that this isn't a bad kid who just wants to X, Y, Z. This is a precious kid because they all are. Right who's dang really struggling right now. (laughs) It changes everything about how I am with that kid, even if I still have no idea what to do, like zero zilch, none. But changing how I see that kid changes that kid. And it's a disconfirming experience because they're expecting people to look at them as though they're a bad kid. Yeah, they're expecting a predictable reaction and they don't get it. Yeah. That's a new, that's an opportunity for a new neural pathway. So that's why I'm a real big, sometimes people get frustrated with me and I get it that I, I spent too much time talking about the theory. No. I really think they're like, just tell me what to do. And I'm like, I will tell you what to do. Don't worry. I've got a lot of tools. <laughs> but the tools aren't useful if you don't understand what's happening underneath. Otherwise, we just stay in behavior whack-a-mole. You're just chucking things at a behavior and crossing your fingers and the tools become useful when you understand what they're trying to seek then we can use a more a tool that's actually going to be helpful or has a more likely but also truly just changing our way of being with them is a tool now it doesn't stop the throwing things or the really bad behavior that absolutely needs to stop because it's hurting other people and themselves but it is an intervention is the most important intervention and all the other interventions are not as useful without pairing it with that. Mm. So if nothing else, people who are listening can take away that the more we can be open and yes. not labeling and seeing the worst in behavior yeah, or interpreting the behavior as the worst intentions. Yeah. That is an intervention in itself. But I, I think that's so valuable and it's so beautiful that you are like we were saying earlier, you're teaching parents who have kids with these big baffling behaviors and 
you're teaching people who are professionals working with parents at whatever level. So you are potentially reaching, you know, the, the reach is huge. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, that's a movement. You're, it's a movement. You're leading a movement. It feels fun. And I do enjoy hearing about, you know, the person in my program who's had a 10 minute call with their client's pediatrician and they lob out some of my owl watchdog and possum language maybe. And then all of a sudden after just a 10 minute conversation, the pediatrician's, you know, in Oregon has been introduced to a new idea about, I mean, it's really fun to hear about all the ways that little tiny moments matter. And it certainly fuels the very hard work that, that we do. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thank you for your work. And I wish we had more time. (laughs) Maybe we'll do something Mm -hmm. else, but before we have to wrap up for now, will you just tell people, tell them about your book and how it can be used as as much as you can do that sort sure. of quickly for yourself. So raising kids with big baffling behaviors, colon, brain body sensory strategies that really work, which is the world's longest book title ever. And did you know authors don't really get to choose? <laughs> hey, it's it's very clear what it yeah, is. It's very clear. Exactly. It is a book for parents. So I've very, very deliberately written it in a way that is very useful for parenting professionals as well. And it really outlines my, the way, you know, the path that I take working with kids and families is that I teach them a lot about the brain and the neurobiology of behavior. And then I help them see their kids' behaviors through this playful metaphor of the owl and the watchdog and the possum brain. And then we spend time getting to know the owl, watchdog, and possum brain. And then we strengthen the owl brain with basically tools and strategies that widen the window of stress tolerance. And then we calm the watchdog and calm the possum brain, which are how to respond to dysregulated behaviors. And then... The third big important piece of of the work that I do is helping the adults develop more of a relationship with themselves. So we talk a lot about self-compassion, a lot about widening their own window of stress tolerance, a lot about their own implicit memory and what might be causing them to see behaviors through a certain way. And so so I have like a parenting model that gets all outlined in this book and what I really wanted to do with this book, and people are saying, maybe I did this. I, I was still, the book's not out yet, so we'll see what a lot of people say. I really wanted the book not to just be another parenting book. Like I really wanted to take the theory of what I understand about how the brain changes in relationship. And like, could I do that in a book somehow? You know, and I thought about like, what really is it about the work in the office that I do with kids and families? It's not just the information I give them. In fact, that's like a teeny tiny part of it. What really changes parents and kids? And could I offer that through words in a book so that it changes lots of people instead of just a very small handful of people who can work with me? And so how I tried to do that is the book has characters. And there's a mom, Nat, who comes to the office for parent coach parent coaching and I'm helping her and every chapter opens 
with Nat coming in and me helping her and it's in first person language. So I bring the reader through my experience of being with Nat and helping her kid. And so the reader, the the professional reader gets to kind of see how I help families. The parent reader gets to hear my inner dialogue about how much I love them. Mm. And that's my hope that at the end of the book, they'll feel that that's true, that I am showing up for them constantly with, I adore you. I think you're as precious as I think your child is. And we're in this together. No matter what you tell me about what you did or how much you don't like your kid or what you can, whatever you tell me, I see it through the same lens that I see your kids. So I, I really want professionals to see that too. Like I want them to work with parents in that way. I really want the parents reading it to, to hear my inner dialogue and how I feel about them and maybe believe it because I think that that matters. And I think that's how the brain changes and then how they'll be able to use the tools with their kids instead of just reading another parenting book, getting a bunch of tools, not being able to use it. We'll see. Yeah, no, if it I sounds so that. beautiful. <laughs> I can't wait to read it myself. Yeah, and... I'll send you a copy. Oh, thank you. And yeah. I know I know that parents often feel like, oh, you you think I'm a bad parent. You care about my kid, but you don't think I know what I'm doing. And also you think you know better yeah. how to parent my kid. And you think you would do better, but you don't know because you don't know what we deal with at home. And you know, it's like that yeah. parent is there really needing somebody yeah. to really care the same way that the child therapist does care about the child, right? They need the exact same thing their kids need, which is to be yeah. seen and known and co-regulated. And I wanted to see if I could do that in a book. And a couple people have said I was successful. We'll see what happens when everybody reads it. <laughs> Maybe a couple more people will. And that's really my goal. Will a couple people, a couple more people than I could have impacted in the office get that experience of being seen and known and co-regulated and begin to like internalize that voice of you're doing the very best that you can. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, Robin, for all of the parenting professionals, parents and others who are listening and, and want to learn more. Maybe they want to join one of your programs or I know they'll probably want to buy your book too. Where can everyone find you? I'm easy to find robingobel.com. I have a podcast. It's called The Baffling Behavior Show. It's mostly for parents. I mean, parents are my audience, but of course, professionals are, are listening. And actually a huge amount of free resources on my website. So I have a free resources tab with videos, eBooks, downloadable infographics, huge amount of free stuff. Easy to find. Of course, the podcast is free. Then the, you know, the book, and then I have the club, my professional or my membership community for parents. And then being with is my professional training program. And all of that's just at robingobel.com. Wonderful. Well, again, Robin, thank you for so generously sharing your time and talents with us today. And I'm really grateful to you. You do important work in the world, such important work. So I'm so happy to connect with you. Thank you.
Thank you to Therapy Notes for sponsoring this week's episode. I do love Therapy Notes. It's such an asset to my business and makes my job as a practice owner and a therapist much easier. Try it today with no strings attached to see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 